Genesis chapter 49. Thank you for being here tonight. I know a lot of our folks have already started going out of town for vacation, and some of you will be going away. Please travel safely while you're away, and uh, hope that you'll keep your church before you in prayers. If you're still in town, we still have church, amen? And uh, Wednesday night, we have our, our midweek service here at the 26th. Looking forward to that. Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12. Genesis 49, 8 to 12. Believe it or not, this fits right within Christmas, so the timing of this couldn't be any better here. Listen very carefully as I read the scripture tonight. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. His name means praise. That's what it means. You want to underline that. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion who shall rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in, in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Notice verse 10, because we have the messianic prophecy here in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Notice this next phrase, three words, until Shiloh come. You want to circle the word Shiloh tonight. That's our title tonight, until Shiloh come. I shared a, a, a humorous story with the Cornerstone and Heirs Together class. I'll share as kind of our intro tonight. An old cowboy way up the, in the country there of Texas had applied for an accident insurance policy. And uh, he had an insurance agent come out. And of course, the insurance agent wanted to pre-qualify him. If you've ever gone through that process there, they want to pre-qualify him. So the first question the insurance agent asked me, he said, Sir, have you ever been in an accident? And he said with a long southern drawl, No, I have never been in an accident. But I do have to tell you that uh, one time a bronco kicked me in the ribs and broke two of my ribs. And another time a rattlesnake bit me and I got venom in my bloodstream. And the insurance agent's got the application out with a pen. He's thinking, wait a minute, you've been, you've been kicked by a bronco, broke two of your ribs, and you, had, you were bit by a rattlesnake. That's not an accident? No, nah, that was an accident. They did it on purpose to me there, you know. <laughs> and I want to remind you today, Jesus didn't come to earth by accident. He came to earth for a purpose. He came to earth for a purpose for us tonight. And we're going to see that in this prophecy in Genesis 49. Father, thank you tonight for all that we've heard. Thank you for the testimonies of our students. Lord, I thank you for Philippians 1.6. He who's begun a good work in you shall continue to perform it to the day of Christ. And I pray for our church. Lord, we not miss the good work that you're doing in our lives. Father, help us as we get towards the year end. And remember what Paul said in Philippians 3, that we have not attained. We need to press towards the mark, toward the high calling of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he said, this one thing I do. And tonight, right now, the one thing we need to do is to focus and concentrate on the Word of God, on the prophecy here, its application, and encourage our hearts as we consider the Christmas story and how this kind of weaves into the Christmas story for our hearts tonight. Thank you for the brothers and sisters in Christ here this evening. Lord, as we look back over 2018, it's been a wonderful year. There's been, year, been a year of victories, a year of celebration. 
for some has been a year of trial and others a year of just difficulties and trusting God. But Lord, we thank you for trials. We thank you for difficulties because because of that, we've had to pray harder. We've learned to trust you. And Lord, we've grown closer to you. Help those going through difficult moments right now not to lose sight of the glory in this. And they realize that the, that the trial of our faith worketh patience. And these fiery trials, Lord, are used of God that we might come forth as pure gold before you. And then tonight, Lord, as we consider the life of Judah, the summation of things that his father Jacob said while he's leaning upon the staff and dying on his bed, we not miss the message that's found here that is so applicable for Christmas. Would you bless our time together? And then please, Lord, tonight, if there's somebody here that's not sure they're saved, they're not certain about where they're going to spend eternity, help them through this message to find Jesus. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We had a wonderful uh, time on Friday night with our Christmas fellowship with our different growth groups here at church. And I'm praying that this coming year we'll be able to start a few more growth groups. And God's going to raise up our teachers and workers for that and help stretch our faith. But we gave us a theme for those classes who, who could do so to, to give a devotion on the, on the thought from Matthew chapter 2, finding Jesus at Christmas. You know, it's very easy that in the shelf of everything, we forget about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can just get, as maybe Abby was talking about in her testimony tonight, that we can get so used to church, we can get into the routine and forget about Jesus. I want you to notice in our passage tonight that as we consider Christmas, which is about a day and a half away, we consider this evening that we're going to find Jesus here in Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12. Notice this evening, Judah is a picture of the grace of God working through the Jewish nation as it moves forward towards the fulfilling of the prophecy of Jesus Christ coming to be the Savior of the world. Judah is a picture of the grace of God working through the nation of Israel as it makes its, it's, it's making its forward advance for Jesus coming into the world. I want you to see five very simple thoughts tonight. We don't have a lot of time, but five simple thoughts about Judah this evening. First of all, I want you to notice with me Judah and his sin. Judah and his sin. We're going to give a bi biographical sketch about Judah. The first mention of Judah is at his birth in Genesis 29, verse 35. It's in your notes. If you'll turn there. And the Bible says of Leah, his mother, and she conceived again and bare a son. And she said, listen very carefully. This is the testimony of this woman after she's travailed in birth. Now will I praise the Lord. How many want to praise the Lord tonight? Amen. Now will I praise the Lord. By the way, let's not just praise the Lord when we have good times. Let's praise the Lord when there's tough times. Amen. And everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. She said, now will I praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah and she left birth. After his birth, a little bit more than 20 years has transpired. I want you to imagine where he's at now. We go from seeing Judah, the infant, to seeing Judah, a young man. He's a mature man. He's a man that, has, that gets married. We find him 20 years later. And we're not going to go into Genesis 38 tonight. But in Genesis 38, it's the record of Judah's sin. You cannot read Genesis 38 as a Christian in public or in private if you have a tender heart towards God. You cannot read Genesis 38 without blushing with embarrassment when you read the things that transpire in Genesis 38. Uh, Judah basically in this chapter, it, this is the, one of the darkest chapters of all the Bible as it describes the sin of Judah. 
And Judah is presented to us in a darkened setting of immoral choices, lies, and shameful confrontation. You know, in our lives, it is so easy for us to get caught up with, the, with, with things and get caught up with relationships that we don't even see that we're in the midst of temptation. You guys have been here. You've been in church for a long time. You know what James chapter 1 teaches about how lust works in our heart and how sin comes about through lust. But here is Judah there. He's caught up in these series of immoral choices, and he made bad choices. He gets caught up in lies, and then he's shamefully confronted. Now, Judah, as we'll see, it will be uh, uh, later on also in Genesis 37, would be the leading voice in the conspiracy of Joseph's portrayal and eventual uh, sellout to the Midianites. Uh, he's going to live with a guilty conscience for 20 plus more years. I mean, Judah is a man, as we look at Genesis 38 and we go jump to Genesis 49, we're kind of kind of wonder, well, how did, how, what happened to Judah there? How did he get that way? And I want you to notice tonight the things that happened in Judah's life because we cannot look at Judah and the victories God gave him without looking first historically at the sins of his life. Notice these things that happened. First, how did he fall into all these sort, uh, sinful choices? Well, first of all, there were the worldly influences. There were the worldly influences of life. Now, as you consider 2019, you know, God wants you and me to have friends. You know, the Bible says a man that has friends must show himself friendly. And uh, we should have friends. But it's very, very important for us to choose very carefully our friends. Our friends uh, care in many ways, our friends influence us. They influence us in our habits. They influence us by our choices. They influence us what we, where we go and what we do. And Judah had a friend by the name of Hira, the Adulamite. Hira was a Canaanite. Hira was not a believer. Hira, he got too close to, to Hira, and Hira's Canaanite, his Canaanite background influenced uh, Judah in, in not in a very, very good way. And if we're not very careful, our associations can, can affect us positively or negatively. And a verse I would just call your attention to, just to meditate on as you go into the new year, is Proverbs 13, 20, which says, he that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Be very, very careful. Number one, be very careful as a friend how you lend your influence to other people. Be very, very careful as a friend how you lend your influence to people. Listen, I'm around a lot of preachers. I know thousands of preachers. I'm very careful of who is going to influence me as a preacher, and I'm very careful how I'm going to influence other preachers. I'm very careful around our church that my influence is positive and not negative, that I give you good influence, not that bad influence. But on the other hand, you need to be very careful. If your personality style you're more of a follower than you're a leader. You tend to just listen to other people's opinions. You need to be very careful who shapes your opinions. Did you know there's people in life who like to take advantage of weak personalities? Did you know there's people in life that like to take advantage of you as a follower? They want because it builds their insecurity that you're following them. And you need to be very careful, as we talked about to the, the, the Cornerstone class today, that, you know, as Christians, we need to surrender our insecurities to the Lord and realize that if we're not very careful, we can let our perception of things to shape us. And if we're not very careful, we can let other strong personalities affect us without even knowing what does the Bible say about things. So I just want to say tonight, as we look at Judah, Judah fell into the sinful choices he did, as you read Genesis 38 because of worldly influences. Secondly, Judah sinned and fell into bad choices because of wicked infatuation. Now, Judah was a man that got married. His wife died at a very young age, and that's a sad thing. And in the moment of his grief and the loss of his wife, he found himself in a place where he got infatuated 
And he felt a series of bad choices. Now, you say, that wouldn't happen to me. If you're a man, if you're saying that, you're in danger. Because let, 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 let him take heed lest that thinks he's standing. Let him take heed lest he fall. And we find this man at a time of weakness and lack of self-control. He felt a lustful desire. In fact, he thought nobody was looking. He thought nobody knew, but God knew. And somebody was looking. And he fell into some bad choices there. And his sin later on was publicly exposed. And he still left behind memories and a tarnished testimony. If you read Genesis 38, it, just, it was just a series of things. When you read that, your heart, you cannot read without your heart being broken. So we see that his sin was a result of wicked infatuation. But there's something else here. <coughs> Notice Genesis 37, if you would, please. There were the worldly influences, the wicked infatuation. But thirdly, there was the wretched infamy. Now, he went, now, now he's made all these bad choices and things. <coughs> you think, well, can a man go any lower than that? He did. He did. And in Genesis 37, we have the story there of how Joseph's brothers sold out Joseph. And Judah was the leading voice in that. <coughs> Joseph said, in and Judah said in Genesis 37, Joseph had been thrown into the pit by his brothers. He's languishing in the pit. And they're languishing in the pit. They're, they're eating their lunch while he's crying out for help. <coughs> and Judah comes up with this, what he thinks is a novel idea. He says, hey, guys, I have a great idea. Let's sell out our brother. I see a caravan of Midianites. The direction they're heading to is Egypt. <coughs> let's sell our brother off as a slave. And let's get some money and profit off him. Look what he says here. And Judah said to his brethren, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? <coughs> Come, let us sell him to the Israelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content. Now, he's brother number four, but his brother number four, he carried a lot of weight. And when he made the suggestion of selling off Judah, his brothers bought into it, and they liked the idea of just taking their brother. Now, I don't know about you, but if you think for a minute, how low could you be? I mean, how, how low could you be? How lacking of conscience could you be that you'd sell off your own sibling for 20 pieces of silver? That's pretty low. I mean, that's just total, totally lack of conscience if you think about it for a minute. And even though they were jealous of him, to be at the place that you hated your brother so much that you'd sell him out, that is pretty low. And Judah led that. And if we look at Judah tonight, we can't let, look at him without shaking your head and stopping there at Genesis 37, 38, think, what a very low individual. Tonight we see Judah and his sin. Charles Spurgeon said this about sin if we're not very careful. He said, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. I thought this was a great thought by Charles Spurgeon about sin. Tonight we see Judah and his sin. But notice number two very quickly. Notice Judah and his substitution. Now this is where it gets good. It starts to go, up, go uphill from here. We've hit the bottom when we look at his sin, but we're starting to go uphill. By the way, aren't you glad when you hit rock bottom, there's only one place to go and that's up, amen? To get out of that, to get out of the pit and to go forward for God. And so we look at Judah tonight and 20 years plus has passed by since Genesis 38 and Genesis 37. Joseph was sold into slavery. They thought, frankly, they'd never hear or see Joseph again. The famine has hit Egypt. It's covered the land. That great famine that was prophesied over in Genesis, I think, 41 there. And so the famine affects Jacob and his sons. He sends 
he sends 10 of his sons into the land of Egypt to buy some corn. And uh, they didn't know this is Joseph they're dealing with. They had no idea that Joseph became the number two man in all of Egypt. In fact, he was in charge of the economy. He was the secretary of agriculture. He was the secretary of finance. He was in charge of all those things. I mean, he gave great, I mean, he just, God was using him there. And he was over all this. And the brothers come. Joseph recognized them. Granted, they're 20 years older. But Joseph recognized them. They did not recognize Joseph. Joseph had matured. Joseph was in his Egyptian garments. And Joseph was a man of stature and great leadership. They did not recognize him. And so he's there, and he's just trying to hold back his emotions because he had forgiven his brothers many years before that, and he wanted to embrace them. But he needed to find out, did his brothers really realize what they did? Did his brothers feel the same about him as he did for them? And so he puts them through a rigors of test. And in that test, he tells them, I'll tell you what you've got to do. He says, if you want to, I'm going to keep back Simeon. I'm going to put Simeon in jail, and I'm going to hold him back here. The next time you come, what I want you to do is if you have a younger brother, which was his brother Benjamin, by his mother Rachel. He said, if you have a younger brother, and he kind of queried them, and they revealed they had a younger brother. He said, I want you to come back your, with your younger brother so I, you can prove to me that you are a real man. And of course, they're shaking in their, in their sandals. They're scared to death because they're in front of a sovereign uh, prince. Wonder what's going to happen to them. And so they go back with this in their mind, but they didn't tell Jacob all this. Well, we get Genesis 44. And in Genesis 44, now they've run out of corn. They've depleted all their food stores, and they think, okay, we've got to go back to Egypt again. And Jacob sends them out. He says, Yo, guys, you've got to go back. We've depleted our corn stores. We've got to go back. I want you to go back and see them. And it's that time the brothers started talking, and Judah becomes a spokesman again. Now, as we start seeing Judah, we realize that Judah is a very articulate spokesman on behalf of the family. And Judah starts talking. He says, Dad, he says, he says, Father, to Jacob, he says, Dad, Father, we, we, we know we need to go back, but we got a little bit of challenge here because if we go back, we need to bring Benjamin with us. Of course, now, Jacob is horrified because he's already lost Joseph. He thinks Joseph is dead. He thinks, in fact, he's traumatized by the fact that he's been living with the memory for 20 years thinking that a, a wild beast had torn Joseph to shred, and all he had were the remnants of it was a torn coat of many colors. And so he's very reserved. He's very reluctant about sending Benjamin with them. And Judah steps up in all of this. Judah steps up. Now, this is not the same Judah we see in Genesis 38. The Judah we see in Genesis 38 and 37, he is, a, he is a man of infamy. He is a man of very low character, a man that you cannot trust, a man that you don't want to trust. And Judah kind of steps up. I think Judah's been living for 20 plus years with the terrible things he, li he lived with. And I think deep down in his heart, somewhere behind the scenes in private, he got right with God. He needed to, and he needed to prove himself. Can I tell you something tonight? You know, sometimes we mess up and we think it's okay if we, you know, we, we think if we mess up, we can get all right, we can confess our sins to God and forgive us. God does forgive us, but you know, publicly, you still need to prove yourself. Probably you need to still prove to people that you're genuine, you're true, and you can be trusted. And you know, Judah, above anybody else, he didn't care what his brothers thought about him. He cared about what God thought about him, and he cared about what his father thought about him. So notice Judah in Genesis 48, 43, verses 8 to 9. <clears throat> he says this, Judah said to Israel's father, send the lad with me. And that's speaking about Benjamin. Send the lad with me, and we will rise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. Notice verse 9. I will be surety for him. You ought to underline. That's a great phrase right there. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and send him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. Now Judah, what he just said there, Genesis 43 verse 9, is the doctrine of substitution. We see a different Judah here. Judah has, is representing here. He said, look, Dad, send him with me. 
I will be surety for him. I will, be, I, will, I will make sure the debt is paid in full. I will make sure that nothing happens to Benjamin, but if something does, he says, if it does, he says, then, you can, then, then you can, I will bear the blame forever. I will take full responsibility, whatever that cost is in the situation. And he tells dad, he says, dad, we cannot go back there unless Benjamin goes with us. And so Judah pledges himself as a substitute for Benjamin there and, and, and the other bro- brothers there. Now, the doctrine of substitution is this. Substitution means this. It is when someone else, some one person, take a suitable person takes the place of another for a very important purpose. Now, in our simple way of thinking, we think of substitution in a sporting event situation. We'll think of like a basketball game or a football game, you know, where someone will substitute for another one to take their place. And, uh, and, and kind of the coach's mindset, I'm hoping the substitute can come in and, and spark things up and get things going. That's kind of our thought here. But the doctrine of substitution in the Bible means someone who meets all the requirements, they don't miss anything that that meets all the requirements that's suitable to fulfill a responsibility. This person, they're not wishing they'll they'll do it. They know this person will accomplish this. Now Judah here in stepping up in the doctrine of substitution is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ being your sin substitute and my sin substitute. And I can't think of a better doctrine to think about tonight next to the incarnation of Jesus Christ than the substitute Substitutionary work of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? That He took your place and my place on the cross and dying for our sins. You see, when we think about the doctrine of substitution, we see that in the symbol of the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb before that was one lamb for every, for every man in Genesis 4. And then later on, it would be one lamb for every household in Exodus 12. When the Passover was instituted by God through Moses, it now became one lamb for the entire nation. When Jesus came, mark this, when Jesus came, it was one lamb for the entire world. Amen? Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And so Jesus Christ, substitutionarily, is a symbol of, of substitution through the Passover lamb. We see this symbol in the scapegoat during the Day of Atonement as the high priest would pray over the head of one of two goats and then they would send that goat away into the wilderness and it was a picture there that his goat was sent away. He prayed over that goat and the goat, the sins were transferred to that goat, if you would. And the goat as he went to the wilderness, it was, it was a picture of the fact that our sins are carried away, that our sins will no more come back to haunt us. They, they've gone away and the Bible says their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. That's a wonderful comfort for you and I to know that if, especially if we're an insecure personality, that our sins and iniquities he'll remember no more when we trust Christ's Savior. Now notice some scriptures tonight, very simple scriptures that speak to us about the doctrine of substitution. Would you follow with me tonight, please? Romans 5.8. But God commended his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us. How shall he not with them also freely give us all things? Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Ephesians 5 2. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling Savior. What's the common denominator about all those verses? He died for us, he took our place. He took our say, Amen. Come on. This is the doctrine of substitution. I mean, if Jesus didn't die for you and me, you'd have to die for yourself. You'd be in hell. That's where you're going. Thank God for the preaching of the cross. Amen. Thank God for the doctrine of substitution. He died for us. He took our place. 
Once he took our place, all the sin debt was paid in full. Then notice Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for how many people? For every man. That's the doctrine of substitution. Judah said, I will be surety for him. Let me bear the blame forever. A surety is when another person assumes the responsibility for another person's debt. A surety says, I'll, I'll co-sign the line. If he can't make good, you can put it on me. And here's what the book of Hebrews says about Jesus Christ being our surety, Hebrews 7.22. By so much was Jesus made surety of a better testament. He paid it in full through his death. That's what the idea of the testament is. He paid it in full through his death. He said, I will be surety for him. Let me bear the blame forever. Jesus took your blame and I, uh, your blame and my blame, our sins together. You know, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Now we go to Genesis 44. And in Genesis 43, he tells his father, Jacob, I'll take responsibility. In Genesis 44, he's standing before Joseph, and he repeats the same words he told his father to Joseph. Notice what he says there. It's such a wonderful passage. In Genesis 44, 32 to 33, Judah takes responsibility for Benjamin. For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, If I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Watch what he says in verse 33. Uninhibited. Unrestrained. Now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad a bondman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. He said, You know what? Take me. Take me. I'll take his place. That's substitution, amen. Judah took the place there. He said, Let, let the lad go free. Aren't you glad when you got saved and you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior? You trusted in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, and he set you free. Amen. That's what Jesus did for you and me. Judah and his sin. Judah and his substitution. Notice Judah and his significance. Go back to Genesis 49 quickly. Notice Judah and his significance. First of all, in Genesis 49 verse 8, we see his praise. Unlike Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, who received a very strong word from their father because of their failures. And mark it. Those were the three elder brothers. The three elder brothers forfeited the right to the Father's blessing. And notice Judah here, he is praised. His mother praised him. She said, now will I praise the Lord. And Judah's name means praise. So notice what, jo what, what, what Jacob says there, Judah, comma. Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. He was saying, listen, I, he just made an announcement. He changed the pecking order of how things are going to flow in the tr of all the brothers. He just changed something. He made a fundamental change that would affect the history of the tribes of Israel. Do you follow what I'm saying tonight? What he was saying here, you're going to be praised. Your brothers are going to, they're going to praise you because of what I'm going to say. So Judah, we see his praise. Next, secondly, notice we see Judah and his privilege. Now Judah, of course, is being praised because he was willing to take Benjamin's place. He was willing to take the spot there so that Benjamin go free. But notice the privilege of that. Would you read Genesis 49, 8 with me? Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise, thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies, thy father's children shall bow down before thee. And then he commented, thou art he whom thy, he said, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. And he says, they'll bow down for it. Now watch the privilege. Jacob right there on one breath has given the father's blessing for double honor and double blessing 
to Judah, right there in front of the other brothers. He's given the privilege of the double blessing to him. He's passed it to him in front of all the brothers. Now, I don't know if any of the brothers saw it coming. I don't know if Reuben was kind of wondering what's going on. But right there that moment, to the surprise, the chagrin, or the delight, whatever it may be for those brothers, right there on the spot, Judah is given that privilege there. The right of the firstborn was given to Judah there. Now, that's significant. We'll see in a minute. Because that's how the tribe that we see, that's how that from the tribe of Judah, David would become king and all the kings would descend from there and from there the Lord Jesus Christ would come from the tribe of Judah. Jude, as I said, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi forfeited this right. And I'm not sure if Judah saw that coming, but his nobility from going from a man who was in deep darkness of sin and going to the place we got the forgiveness of God and who's willing to sacrifice his life for his brother Benjamin to get things right, this was acknowledged and praised. And so this privilege now, the privilege of the double blessing and the privilege of being the, the, the honor of the eldest son was placed upon him. So notice, if you would now, verses 11 to 12, we see, we see Judah and his prosperity. He goes on and he says some very wonderful things about Judah in verses 11 and 12. First of all, notice in verse 11, he talks about the strength of Judah. He says, binding his foal into the vine and his ass's coat to the choice vine. I want you to understand the imagery there. If you've ever seen grapevines, they're very thin and very narrow, okay? They can snap very easily. He's saying Judah is so strong. He would be so strong, you could take, the, you could take a, a, a young donkey, a young horse, which has a lot of energy and likes to break away. You can take the rope around their neck and tie it to the vine, and they will not break the vine. He's talking about the strength of Judah. Now, he's saying something prophetically there. Judah would be the strongest of the tribes. Judah would be the tribe that all the other tribes would give reverence and deference to. Judah would be the tribe, as we'll see in a moment, where David would be the, would be the king. He's talking about the strength of Judah there. And then notice, he talks about the success of Judah here. Notice he says something very interesting that we don't use in our terminology, but describes his success. He says uh, here in verse 11, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes his clothes in the blood of grapes. Now, what's he talking about there? Well, he's talking, there's just some messianic things there, but here's what he's talking about. He's talking about his success. He's saying there's going to be, he's using the imagery of a vineyard. And in this vineyard, there's the wine presses. Where the, where the grapes would be trodden on by people. And he's saying there's so many grapes. And there's such an abundant harvest. He says the people that are doing that in their clothing, their, their clothing is stained. It's covered with the, with the, grape, the, grape, the grape juice. We saying, notice what he says in verse 11. There's so much abundance and so much fruit. He's saying in verse 11, his, he, he washed his garment. He's covered with wine. I mean, he's covered, it's almost like he's baptized in grape juice and wine because there's so much abundance here. This is the, it's like the best for, for a farmer, the best, uh, the best harvesting season could ever ask for as he's treading out this wine here. And he's talking about the success of Judah. And as you read through the Bible, you see that detail with all the kings and the blessings of God, Jehoshaphat and Asa and Hezekiah and then eventually leading to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the success of all the kings here. There's wonderful abundance. And even in David himself, you see in David of all the wealth that was given and Solomon, the wealth that were given and how the kings came to him. He's talking about here that he would be overflowing with abundance. So we see Judah and his strength and his success. But notice in verse 12, he talks about the soundness of Judah. And his soundness, he's talking about how healthy he would be. And he uses a description that sounds a little bit weird to us, but it's talking about his health. 
He said his eyes shall be red with wine. That's talking about the sharpness of his vision. His eyes shall be red with wine. Now, if you're not careful, you'll read that. Well, that means he's going to be drinking and he'll be a drunkard. He's bloodshot. That's not what he's talking about there. He's talking again about he's dovetailing on the success aspect that I just talked about. And he's talking about how healthy he is. By the way, you know, when he, as 2019 starts, I'm praying that everyone in our church has the greatest spiritual year you'll ever have. Amen? You want to have a healthy year. I hope you had a healthy year this year. I hope that there's some sins that you forsook. I hope that you grew in your praying. I hope that you grew in your Bible reading. I hope that you grew in your humility. I hope that this year you grew in your service. I hope this year that you grew in just your desire to do more for the Lord. I hope that you tasted and saw even more that the Lord is good in 2018 and even so in 2019. He said his eyes were red with wine and his teeth white with milk. It's talking about the soundness and healthiness of this man. We see Judah here in his significance. Here in Genesis 49, Jacob is pointing to the significance of his son. Well, notice now, we're getting to the end. We see Judah in his sin, Judah in his substitution, Judah in his significance. But notice quickly, Judah in his sovereignty. Would you notice again? He says here in verse, verses 9 and 10, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. Stoop down. He couches as a lion and is an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? In verse 9, three times he refers to him as a lion. Lion is the king of the beast. Amen? Three times he refers to lion. He talks about being a young lion with great vigor and an old lion who's watching. He's talking about a lion or he's talking about kingliness and sovereignty. And then verse 10, he, he reinforces his sovereignty by speaking about the scepter. Kings hold scepters. That's a wonderful thought there as we read about that. And the scepter, the Bible says, shall never depart from Judah. And he says here in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. What he's talking about here, is that the, 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 the establishment of kings which would come from the line of Judah beginning with David and going from David on. You see, that was important to fulfill prophecy because the Lord Jesus Christ was of the tribe of Judah. Jesus would have to prove that he had his ancestry back to David and back to Judah and back to Abraham, and he did so. And we find here in Judah that the sovereignty of, of the nation would be found in him. It says a lawgiver shall not depart from his feet. You know what he's doing there? Isaiah reinforces that in what we saw this morning in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Isaiah talked about the government of the Prince of Peace. He talked about his government or his kingdom. And here's what he said here in Isaiah. Isaiah said, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and of his government shall there be increase. He talked about that. He's talking about the greatness of our Lord. Now, what's he saying here? Judah is a lion. Well, Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen? And in Revelation 5, 5, it says this, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book, to loosen the seven seals thereof. Now, when you look at that, I want you to see a contrast for just a minute before we move on. Satan on my right hand is portrayed to us as, an, as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now what a great image that, that Peter gives us of the devil. He's walking about as a lion, as a predator who's hungry. With this roar, he's announcing he's in town. He's telling, he's telling these flocks of, of, of animals there, you better protect your weak. 
You better protect your young. You better make sure some animal's not straying away somewhere else because I'm in town and I'm looking. And when a lion, when a lion roars, it sends fear into the hearts of every animal that hears it because it's a loud, boisterous war. We have the lion who walketh about seeking and devour. But praise the Lord, there's only one thing you do. There's only one thing that can counter a roar, one lion, and that's a much bigger lion. Amen? And we've got the lion of the tribe of Judah, our Lord Jesus Christ, who can take out that lion out there who's roaring and seeking who may devour. And I want to say tonight, sometimes you think about Satan being a roaring lion. Remind yourself tonight, Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a bigger lion. He's a larger lion. He's a conquering lion. And he's our lion that can overcome him in any way. Thank God tonight for Jesus there this evening. And thank God tonight as we look at the sovereignty, we're looking at the fact of Judah, that the line of kings would come through Judah. Hey, do you see prophecy unraveling? We see a man who's not worthy of these things that God has said about him, but we see Judah who is sinned. We see Judah who steps up 20 years later. He's found the mercies of God and the forgiveness of God and Judah steps in in his substitution and then we see Judah through all this on his father's deathbed. God announces to his father of his significance. He is praised. He, we see his prosperity. We see later on that God gives him privilege and then we see that from this we see sovereignty unraveling. God's describing for us in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 that the key line of kings would come to him but notice as we close this evening which you notice Judah and the Savior. The scepter, verse 10, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. He's saying here, the line of kings will not be broken through Judah. Now, if you read your, your study, your Bible carefully, in 1st, 2nd Kings and 1st, 2nd Chronicles, hey, Satan tried to break that line. And if he was successful in breaking that line, they would have prevented, because Satan heard this prophecy. It would have prevented the Savior from getting, getting to being in Matthew chapter 1 there. But the line could not be broken. He says, he says here, look, he says in verse, verse, uh, verse, uh, verse, nine, uh, verse 10 here, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. He's saying here, look, at, well, here's what's going to happen. It's going to continue, then Jesus is going to come. Jesus is going to come. Shiloh is a word for Jesus. What does Shiloh mean? Well, write this down. Shiloh means tranquility. Shiloh means rest. Shiloh means peace. You know what Jacob's saying there by the power of the Holy Spirit? He's foreshadowing Isaiah 9-6. He's telling us that Shiloh is the prince of peace. He's telling us about the peace of God that would come through the lawgiver named as Jesus Christ. He's the perfect lawgiver. He came to fulfill the law. He says, he said, the scepter shall not depart, nor lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And thank God, aren't you glad 2,000 years ago, Shiloh did come, amen? And Jews who are studying this, I said this on Friday night, it was in the notes for those who shared devotion. Those wise men from Persia, and by the way, it wasn't three wise men. There were three sets of gifts in abundance that were given, but there were many, many wise men in this caravan. Those wise men had studied the scriptures. They were students of the word of God. And in the course of study, I can't help but think, they came across Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 49, verse 8 here, and they saw verse 10, and they read about that, and they, they circled their Shiloh. And then they got to Isaiah chapter 9, and they circled about the Prince of Peace and all that, and they correlated that all together because the Bible is the best interpreter of itself. And they correlated that all together. And guess what they found? They said Shiloh's come. And they marked it. They got that to Micah 5.2. And they looked at all the Old Testament passages. 
And now we get to Matthew chapter 2, and they're following the star that, that Moses talked about in Numbers 24, 17. And they got there, and they found, they found the child. And they, 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 it was just exactly as the scriptures told them. And they, they saw, as they looked at a little baby, many things were going through their mind. They're thinking, this is, this is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the seed of the woman that will bruise the, 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 the neck of Satan. And they're thinking of him, this is Shiloh who's come. This is him. This is the one that Isaiah spoke about. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so tonight as we close, notice this, that is Shiloh, Jesus Christ, is the source, the only source, the most reliable source of tranquility and peace because Jesus comes to you and me tonight as on, the, on the cusp of, the, of, the, of Christmas being here as the Prince of Peace. Let me give you this and we're done this evening. Notice, first of all, what about this peace Jesus gives? Well, would you notice this and write this down? First of all, Jesus Christ accomplished our peace. Aren't you glad about that tonight? Amen? Colossians 1.20. Read that with me. You're falling asleep tonight. You're ready to go home and open presents. Amen? Colossians 1.20. Let's read that together. You have that in your notes? Say amen if you have that, okay? Let's read it together, okay? And having made peace by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether it be things in earth or things in heaven. Now, when you think about the Prince of Peace, he accomplished our peace through the blood of his cross. There was no peace treaty signed. The peace treaty was the blood that he shed. And by the way, we are the ones at, at, with, in animosity with God. We should be the ones who be shedding our blood. He shed his blood for you and me. He accomplished our peace. Number two, he avails us peace. Let's read Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Okay, all together? Let's read it. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Notice this. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And look up here. Are you awake at night like this? Are you anxious? Restless, and I'm not saying that because, I'm not saying, and some people have restlessness because of they've been on treatments, things like that. We've got several folks in our church who've gone through cancer treatments or having terrible time sleeping. I'm talking about Christians tonight. You're sitting on pins and needles all the time. You're worrying about so many things. It doesn't matter if you're, in your eight, you're 18 or whatever. I mean, you're just worrying and careful and overwhelmed. Look at look what the Apostle Paul told us in Philippians 4. And everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, if you're praying something like this, well, God, you know I've got this burden here, and take it away. And then you go off, you still have anxiety. You need to fulfill what verse 6 says. Prayer and supplication means this. You stay on your face before God and keep praying about it until God, te- until God tells you it's time to get off your knees. Amen. It's proven. That's what the Bible's teaching. It's proven. And then he says, when that happens, notice verse 7. And, and, he's connecting. You say, well, I don't need that right now. You will need it. Because it's not a matter if the trial will come. It's when the trial's going to come. You're going to need it. You, be- you better store it up right now. It's like taking vitamin C for a cold. You better store it up right now because it's going to come. Because I'm going to tell you a lot of things. When we come to vision, I'm going to tell you a lot of things that God's not putting my heart. I'm so heavy about for next year. But I'm going to tell you with that, I'm going to put a tongue in cheek. I'm going to tell you, I believe it's going to be a year of a lot of trials also. Not wishing upon it. It's just, that's how God grows us. You're not going to grow in grace if you don't have trials. 
And so notice here, he says, and the peace of God which passes all understanding. We don't understand that peace. Only God can give that peace. But I'm just saying tonight, as we look at it, he, 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 he accomplished our peace and he veils us peace. And the peace of God which, shall, which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But notice this, okay, this is the last thing. He accomplished our peace. He veils us peace. What you notice is Jesus Christ is the absolute of peace. That's a blessing, amen? He's the absolute of peace, Hebrews 13, 20. The God of peace. Now, if the God of peace is a bottle, and the God of peace is medication, and the God of peace is all this stuff, and I'm not discounting that. Don't get me, don't be critical of me. Say, well, you, you don't understand that. No, I understand that, but I want you to understand this today. This is not the God of peace. I said, this is not the God of peace. And popping a bunch of pills is not the God of peace. Jesus Christ is the God of peace. Why would it be in the Bible if he wasn't the God of peace? Amen? He's the absolute. It says, now the God of peace. You know, who, you know who Paul was writing to in Hebrews 13? Christians that were all wired and frantic and worried, out of fellowship with God, wondering if they can get back right with God. And he had to demonstrate to them. He had to help them understand who Jesus Christ is. Listen, if you understand who Jesus Christ is, the whole picture fits together. Amen? And he closes off Hebrews by saying, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, the Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, listen, make you perfect and complete to do all the will of God. That's why we need the God of peace. The Bible says, now the God of peace bruised Satan under your feet shortly. He's the absolute of peace. There was a story of a king who offered a prize to an artist, to artists who could paint the best picture of peace. And a number of artists in his kingdom volunteered for this project. All these pictures came in. From an artistry standpoint, beautiful, beautiful paintings on canvas. And the king was somewhat of a... Um, an expert, I could say, in studying pictures and paintings. He narrowed down the paintings he received to two paintings. The first painting that pictured, he thought pictured peace was a calm lake. The lake, if you would, this artist had pictured it, the water, as if as like a reflecting mirror. That's how peaceful it looked. No ripples on the water, like a reflecting mirror, and overshadowing were these tall, peaceful, towering mountains. You never see those pictures of Yosemite and places like that where there's just these pictures. They just seem very peaceful there. And uh, overhead, he pictured this blue sky with these cheerful, fluffy white clouds. And he put the picture up like kind of on an on a easel. And he looked at it, and those who were in the inner circle of his kingdom looked at it. They, they said, that's a good picture of peace. What do you think, king? He said, I think it's a good picture of peace too. But on the other spectrum, he put another easel up, and he had the, the second picture he picked, what he put on there, was a big contrast to that one. And the second picture had mountains too, but except these mountains, instead of like this one, which fits so well with the serene lake, the mountains on the second one were rugged and very bare. They looked like whatever had grown on there had withered up for a long time ago. And he said above it was an angry sky which there was falling rain 
and darkened rain clouds. It just looked like a very, very um, turbulent, turbulent setting there. So you have these barren, these barren mountains, this angry sky with thunder and lightning coming across. And then coming down the side of one of the mountains was this foaming, this foaming waterfall. And the best way I can describe it, when we were in Costa Rica last year with Brother Bordell, on one of the days he took us to uh, an area called La Paz. And La Paz means the peace. It's a, it's a rainforest. So he said, I need you to see this. I want you to experience this because I, he said, I don't want you to come to my country without, without seeing this. And, and towards the tail end of that, 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 that excursion we were on with Brother Bordell, we came, he said, I want you to see the waterfalls. And, they, and you know, of course, if you don't think about Costa Rica, it's a, it's a, it, there's a lot of rain that happens in Costa Rica and a lot of, lot of, a lot of flash flooding. And we came to this area, it, the temperature dropped dramatically, and these torrential waterfalls were coming. And they were apologizing to us that the water was not clear. It was very dark, almost brownish red, because it was carrying away all the sediment and stuff. And this, the, the rain, I mean, the, 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 the falls were coming down. If you jumped in that, you would have been crushed by those falls. I mean, they were coming down powerfully and strong. And, and the thundering of the waterfalls. I mean, I can still imagine my mind right now the thundering of the waterfalls and how scary it was. And quite honestly, this is the picture that, they, that was kind of painted there. This foaming, torrential waterfall coming down with these dark, dark gray skies and thunder and lightning and these bare mountains. And, and you looked at that and you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Over here, this certainly is a picture of peace. Over here, you look at this and that couldn't, didn't look peaceful. But what caught the king's attention was where this waterfall was, if you looked very carefully, there was a branch that jutted out of the mountain where there was a nest and a mother bird had laid her eggs there and the, and the, and the, little, the, little, the little birds had cracked out of, the, out of the eggs and inside this nest was a mother bird brooding over her little, ch her little chicks inside, if I can call that, in the midst of this waterfall, peaceful, unagitated, undisturbed, while this torrential waterfall is coming down and... Uh, and, and the skies are, are darkened, and the barren mountains, in the midst of all this, is this peaceful little setting about this big on the whole picture. And they said, King, what do you see here? And he said, he described that bird, and he says, the picture that I'm going to ward that describes peace most to me is this picture here. But he said, because he said this, and I'll, I'll repeat what he said here. He said, the king said, because peace does not mean to be in a place where there's no noise, trouble, hard work. Peace means to be in the midst of all those things and still be calm in your heart. Do you know something? When Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace in your heart, there could be turmoil all over your heart, but the peace abides still in your heart. Amen. That's Isaiah 26.3. That will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee, because his mind is stayed on thee. Hey, listen. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. This is so good. Safety consists not in the absence of danger, but in the presence of God. The peace that Jesus gives is not the absence of trouble, but is rather the confidence that he is there with you always. Peace is such a precious jewel that I would give anything for it but truth. That's a great thought. As I close tonight, do you know the Prince of Peace? His peace is absolute. He accomplished that peace for you through the blood of his cross. Tonight, every Christian, I trust this evening, as we look at the life of Judah, Shiloh did come. The promise with Judah, hundreds of years would have to pass. A, few, a couple thousand years have to pass by. But when it came, Shiloh did come.
And Jesus gave us these words. He said in John 16, 33, he said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. Peace is not in, in substitutes. Peace is not in medicines. Peace is in Jesus Christ. He's the Prince of Peace. His own word said that, John 16, 33. He says, these things have I spoken unto you, that you might, in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. How many believe the world has tribulation right now, amen? It's pretty tough out there. The world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Where are you going to find Jesus tonight? Where are you going to find Jesus for Christmas? The Prince of Peace. The author of peace in your life. I trust this evening, you won't have a tumultuous life, a tumultuous evening, a tumultuous next year, a tumultuous Christmas. You look at your Christmas tree, you look at your family, but above all those things, thank God for the Prince of Peace. It's about the fact Shiloh did come, and he brought tranquility and rest and peace for your life and mine. Look at Judah tonight. He received the mercies of God. God was so merciful, God forgave him. God chose through the tribe of Judah that from the tribe of Judah, the lineage of our Lord would come. If you look at Judah, he had a lot of failures, but God was patient with him. By the way, God's patient with you and me too, amen? And he's patient with us, and we see the tribe, that through the tribe of Judah, we see David and Solomon and these kings, Hezekiah and Asa and, and, and Jehoshaphat, men like that. And we get now down to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's rejoice tonight. Jesus is on his throne, amen? He's the Prince of Peace who sits on his throne. If your life is agitated, you ought to find a place at the old-fashioned altar tonight and find the peace of God. If you're not saved tonight, I encourage you to trust Christ as your Savior. Receive him tonight because then you'll have peace, peace, the, the peace with God that you need. There's no peace with God until you take him as Savior. And tonight, it may be your whole idea of Christmas was a little bit twisted. Tonight, we've, we've brought it back full circle to help you get right back on track, having the idea that Shiloh did come, and he offers us that, that perfect peace through the Prince of Peace. Father, tonight... Thank you for the studies of the scriptures and the life of Judah as we go into Christmas. I do pray your blessing upon our church family. We'll have a wonderful Christmas these next few days. But now, Lord, I pray for this invitation time. We've considered Jesus Christ and his substitution, Jesus Christ who's king, Jesus Christ who's significant. Lord, he's, he's to be praised and honored above all. And Jesus Christ who's our Savior. Thank you that the Savior of the world came just as he said he would. The Bible says when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that are under the law. Lord, help us not to take for granted we've been in church tonight and just go on and say we heard another message. But Lord, help us to rejoice and revolve our hearts around the worship of our, of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe, Lord, tonight someone here needs to get saved. And I pray before they leave tonight, they'd receive the greatest Christmas gift that could ever be received, the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, would you have your way? Some are going to Christmas, Lord, with their hearts very heavy and burdened this evening, and they need help from God. They need insight. Others, Lord, have a longing, Lord, to pull closer to you. And I think, Lord, a lot of us sometimes, we feel like when we fail that it's, it's useless and hopeless to pull back, to come back again. But thank God there's hope with God. Judah found that hope. And Judah, because he found that hope, God, you blessed that. And help some of us tonight, maybe we're after feeling like, there's, there's, like it's hard to, pull, to get back into it. Help us just to draw near to God because the Bible says you'll draw near to us when we draw near to you. Please have your perfect way in every heart. May the love of God work in our hearts in a very special way right now.